What's up, Daw Nation? Here's a quick question for you. Does timeless music actually exist? Or does all music die out? Of course, we have classic music that we've been listening to for hundreds of years, but is it gonna die out one day? Does every single piece of music have an expiration date? We're gonna be answering all of these questions today in this week's episode of Behind the Daw with Mern. With that being said, let's go ahead and cue the unforgettable dark cinematic intro video. What's up, Daw Nation? My name is Wyatt Troy. I'm a music producer, much like yourself, and I want to welcome you to our Behind the Daw series. Now, what the heck is Behind the Daw? It is a series where we interview music producers, music industry experts, singers, songwriters, sound designers, literally everyone else in between on an emotional, philosophical, branding, marketing, and overall music business basis. So if you want to keep learning from huge people in the music industry so that you can, number one, make better music, number two, make a bigger impact with your music, and number three, start making a living off something that you're actually passionate about, then go ahead, hit the subscribe button that's right below this video, and click the little notification icon. That way, every single time we put out a new episode of Behind the Daw or any of our other content, you will get notified immediately. So, the big question is, how is this episode of Behind the Daw going to benefit you? What value is it going to bring to you? How is it going to help you on your music journey? That is a handsome question, Daw Nation. So, like I mentioned in the intro, we are interviewing Mern today, which again, if you don't know who Mern is, I would highly encourage you to go check him out. He's making absolutely huge waves with his music, doing really, really creative stuff. But let's talk about the things that you are going to walk away with today. First thing that we're going to talk about is, is art subjective? Is there any piece of art in the entire world where every single person is going to love it? That would be considered objective art. Or is art more subjective where a piece of art is going to be loved by people and hated by people every single time? Is that true? We're gonna be talking about it. Second thing that we're gonna be talking about is filling your creative canteen. What the heck does that mean? What is a creative canteen? You ever had writer's block? You ever been in the DAW? Can't think of anything. Writing lyrics? Can't think of anything. Playing an instrument? Can't think of anything. Filling your creative canteen is going to solve that so that you don't have to go through that. How the heck do we do that? We're gonna be talking about it. And then the third thing that we're gonna be talking about is does setting limitations actually boost your creativity? If you had all the freedom in the world, right? You have no schedule, no commitments, anything like that, would your creativity flow? Or does having schedules, having deadlines, things of that nature actually boost your creativity? We're gonna talk about it. And then finally, like I mentioned in the intro, does timeless music actually exist? We're gonna be talking about all these things in this episode of Behind the Dot. But Don Nation, not only do we have this episode for you, we actually have more value for you at the end of this episode, okay? So go ahead, watch or listen to the entire episode. And then when I come back on the screen like this, we are gonna be talking about the other things that we have for you, the more points of value that we have for you. We're gonna be talking about that again at the end of the episode. So make sure to stay all the way to the end. But Daw Nation, I hope you are absolutely freaking pumped for this week's episode of Behind the Daw with Mern. And with that being said, let's go ahead and ask our wonderful video editor, Zach Nolan, if he will introduce us to Mern and take us behind the dog. I think I'll just start with where you felt that you kind of had your big break. You're a fairly popular name now, and in some people's opinions, you'd say that you've made it. What was kind of the moment where you kind of looked back and said, wow, I've actually accomplished a lot. I feel like I've made it now, or I've gotten to a point where I never thought I'd really get there. That's a great question. I think if you were to ask any producer in today's day and age, it's never one big break or never a moment when you realize, oh, everything's going right for me. It's looking back at years of work and realizing you have this repository of established work that you've built on and just feeling a pride for that. I think for me, if I had to define a moment, it would be playing my first headline show in a club in Shanghai called Arkham because 
I'm ethnically Chinese, but I've never you know, spent a lot of time in China, and that's such a huge market. Also, because the metrics for streaming are just so invisible there, it's really hard to find out how well you're doing. And I think one of these moments was the start of 2018 when I played a show at Arkham. People actually bought tickets. People came out. It was full. It was packed. And in that moment, I thought, you know, wow, people are coming out to these shows. They're buying tickets, and that was just pretty surreal for me because as a longtime music fan, I never thought I would see myself in the other position. I was always the one buying tickets. I was always the one going to shows. So that moment was pretty humbling for me. And I think that's yeah, that was one of the. You know, defining moments. No, that's awesome. I mean, for me, I produce music as well, and I'm not nearly as successful as you yet. <laughs> uh, that's the key word. Yes, uh, yes. but <laughs> you will be. Yes, you will. That's the goal. You know, something I always like to talk about is I think it's called the law of attraction, where you know you visualize it, and if you just keep telling yourself that, you'll eventually get there. But I really like that you talked about kind of your experience in this club because for me, and I also I remember watching an interview with Skrillex. You know, having that really cool community experience in like a smaller venue is really humbling and it's really impactful for me. How I would kind of imagine myself in the future would be to have that moment where everyone came out to see me and came out to see my music. I wasn't just like opening for someone. No, like I was the headliner and they came out for me. I'm really glad that you enjoyed that and really felt that in that experience. It's so much more intimate. You know, I've played so many festivals. I've played big ones that would be traditional milestones for a lot of people, like Tomorrowland, Ultra Miami, Hard Summer. Those crawls were huge. Like no lie, there were ten thousand people at Hard Summer, like two thousand at Tomorrowland on the small Monster Cat stage. Ultra Miami was pretty sizable too. But playing a festival can happen like thousands of ways. But to have people actually come out, you know, a Friday night off of a super busy schedule when there are tons of things to do in a city. To come to your show to you know see you play your music that to me is pretty awesome. Totally. So last night I was filming this course with Zan Griffin. He was talking about how he loves to get up in front of people and how he loves to have what we kind of call is this mass connection, right? You're connecting with a whole crap ton of people at a time, right? So he's talking about like hey, that's one of the things that he loves, and he asked me if I ever wanted to do that with my own music, and I told him no. And he's like, whoa, like, wait, what? And I was like, I really don't enjoy mass connection. I actually really enjoy one-to-one connection. Like if I go to a party, I'm not the guy that's bouncing around talking to a bunch of people, right? I focus in on one person. I talk to that person really, really well. I get to know that person really, really well. But it sounds like from what you're saying, you're more so on the mass connection side. Is that what you're saying is where you find the joy in this? Yeah, I think for me, I've never thought of it that way. It wasn't such a dichotomy like this versus this. To me, it was just sharing energy. It could be one person. It could be a group of people. I still enjoy having that intimate one-to-one. One reason why I fell in love with producing because how accessible it is to find a like-minded community and you know share music. And I live for those moments as much as I do playing for other people. I just love sharing music with people, music that I've made, music that I'm interested in, with other people individually. So yeah, I get that sentiment. Totally. So. To expand on that, why do you like to share your music with people? Just to see if people have the same reactions to it as I do. My favorite thing to do is just make tracks all day that I don't have thoughts in releasing. It could be exploring an idea or trying to capture an emotion or feeling. I just get super interested and super excited when I'm just replaying the render in my studio alone late at night, just dancing, just bouncing, and to have that moment. Share with people, you know, if I do something cool or interesting that I think is pretty cool or interesting, 
And if I send it to a producer friend and he points that out, he's like, oh, I like what you did there. Not only does it make me feel good, it just makes me think like, oh, like someone else understands this piece of music the way that I do. And it's just that shared connection that makes me happy, I guess. I agree. There was an interview. Unfortunately, it was never able to come out, but it was with Crywolf. Do you know who Crywolf is? Yeah. Perfect. So it was with him, but he talked about this and I asked him that question. And he said exactly what you said. He said it a little bit differently, but basically this. One of the greatest joys of being a creator is to be known is for someone to know what you have created, not just know about it, but to know it, to understand it, to let it become a part of them, for them to find meaning and value in that thing that you've created. It's one of the greatest parts of creation. The first part of the creation process that we love is the actual creation, you're creating it. But to fully fulfill that creation is for it to be known, for it to be ingested in, you know, like for it to become a part of someone else, to make it into this bigger thing, right? Can we agree on this? Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about how the ingestion of music changes with time. So when you're talking about like timeless work that, you know, lasts through the ages, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think for a record to be known or a piece of music to be known, it has to be at the right place and the right time. It has to exist in the right ecosystem. You could be writing super futuristic music today that will always forever be on SoundCloud and like 5,000 plays. But if someone were to you know, recreate that track piece by piece, exactly the same like 20 years from now, it could be a lot more popular than what it is today. And I think that's just the merit of how music exists in certain points in time. And I think that's super interesting for producers like me, or for producers really in general, because there's always this pressure. You can't sit on track forever. If not, it loses its meaning. It loses its, I wouldn't say relevance, but it loses its place and this canvas that's always stretching, always expanding. So deep, man. I want to expand on what you just said, which was something to the effect of like, you don't believe in timeless music. Is that the phrase that you use? Yeah. Tell me more about that. You don't believe in timeless music. So do you feel like the music that we currently define as timeless, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, classical songs, like songs from Beethoven and stuff like that, or maybe classic songs from like the 80s, like a lot of Michael Jackson or Tupac style stuff. You know, one would argue that those things are timeless, but what you're saying is that they're not timeless. They just have an abnormal shelf life, but they're not timeless. Eventually they'll die out. Is that what you're saying? Something along those lines. But what I'm saying is there is a trajectory. There's a, you know, almost like a catapult in which the right elements, the right time period, the right ears in which it falls on kinds of you know, immortalizes that music. If it were shifted slightly, you know, like if it were released five years ahead of its original release, or if it were made in a different part of the world, made by a different person, even though if it's the same song in essence, it might have not been as popular today or might be even more popular because I believe how music is ingested is really relevant on time. It's always moving forward. And at a different point in time, it's always in a different state, you know, like a, a state change. And music relates to that environment very differently at any point along that line. I definitely want to add one thing to that is I really agree with what he's saying. And I think the question you could ask is what immortalizes music and what makes it stand the test of time, so to speak, like on those few instances in which it seems to happen, you know, like, why are we still talking about the Beatles? Why are we still talking about the Rolling Stones? Why are we still talking about Beethoven? Like, you know, what caused those things to be cemented in history? I think one thing that causes that is definitely generational resonation, so to speak. So like, why did the Beatles become so popular? And that's because 
they really resonated with their generation with like the younger generation that they grew up in same age group the music they were writing was some people would say rebellious or something like that something that resonated with that time you compare that to like a modern day band today like 21 pilots a lot of people have compared them to like the beatles because of the fact that their music really resonates with today's generation with like gen zers uh, and millennials and things like that it really resonates with the feeling of that generation like the emotions of that generation so i think that like what Manfred was saying is that, you know, 21 Pilots have released their songs five years ago. It may not have resonated as strongly as if it was released today or, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years from now, it might have missed its mark. So I think that that's really a good point is that you never know if your music is going to release at the right time. You can't necessarily predict that stuff. So I think that one potential lesson is that you shouldn't necessarily just hold on to that stuff. Because yeah, maybe in a hundred years, it might've been more popular, but <laughs> you're not going to be alive then. So like, you know, you, you need to just put your stuff out there and just know that you created something good. Yeah, you just got to put it out. Do you struggle with the fear of holding on to something? Like you're holding on to a song. It's like, I feel like this is going to be big, but I just don't feel like it's going to be big right now. Have you ever went through that experience? I've definitely thought that. And it's just a gamble because why songs become huge or become hits or become well-known is really not a science. You can't crack it. It's like atmospheric noise, right? It's just everything has to align at the right moment, at the right time. And there's no way metrics can tell you how that happens. It's a little bit like winning the lottery. You can't plan for it. You can't try to remake moments like that. I think of that scene in Back to the Future when Marty McFly is playing all these hits from his time that weren't you know, hits back then. And the crowd's just silent. I think about that moment a lot because what if the music I'm making right now is maybe too futuristic or maybe too ahead of its time or maybe too behind its time? And then I just remember it's not my place to decide that or it's not in my best interest to think about these things because there's no way to know for sure. The only way you can be certain is to just put things out there out of respect for the song and out of respect for the musical work you've created because I feel every piece of music, every piece of art has a time and place for it. And that's usually at the point of creation. You know, once you conceptualize it, once you render it, once you think of the idea, that's where it belongs. And that's why you have to put things out immediately. That is profound. So kind of what I'm walking away with that is that like whenever an artist, a producer, whoever has a song and they can put this song out, but there's always that chance like this may be the best time to put it out. This may not be the best time to put it out. But the fact is, is that you as a human, you cannot properly decipher that. You have no idea when that is. You don't know if the right time was today, yesterday, next week at 3 p.m. on Thursday. Like you have no idea when it's time to put it out. So that's why as a human, since you are incapable, don't worry about that. Just put it out. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. It's just not our places to decide what combination of people, of generations, of music tastes is the right time for your work because number one, that's not your authority. And number two, that's kind of offensive to the current state of you know the people out there, where the current state of music is, what their tastes and preferences are. What you're saying when you're holding back a release is really that I decide when this will come out because I know what you like. I know what you will like in a year or in a few months. That's not really nice of me to decide that. So no, I don't think I would lock a song away for years at a time or anything like that. I see. So I agree with you. I completely agree with you. My question with this is, do you think it's possible to raise the odds a little bit, so to say, 
in meaning this basically like we don't know if our song is going to work but could we create an atmosphere where it is most likely going to work for example like me you know doing marketing for so long and all that kind of stuff i feel like you can do things to kind of help you set yourself up to win not necessarily it doesn't guarantee that you know your song is going to blow up and it's going to be the right thing but you can kind of raise the odds a little bit meaning like you putting it out to the right people you having a proper plan in place to market it you know that your audience really likes x and you know that x really resonates with you too so therefore you can create that so on and so forth like i feel like there's things that you can do to raise those odds right it's a numbers game you can go through and you can have an amazing marketing plan you can do all this kind of stuff and you can do all that work and i would highly encourage anyone listening to do that i feel like that will help raise the odds but at the end of the day you're right we don't know how to make a song go viral we don't know how to make it a hit i remember reading a book one time i think it's called hit makers basically what this book is about is it examines the greatest hits over the last 50 years i mean like the viral hits the things that just kept shattering records and the thing is with every single hit song that they went through and they examined they saw that there was anomaly style events that happened with every single thing things that people couldn't track things that couldn't predict i mean like it was really crazy stuff like this person had to get on a boat and he missed his thing so he took the next boat and then he accidentally left his record on the sea and then someone found it and he happened to be this and he talked to this like it was just like total i don't want to say luck but kind of luck based stuff you know what i mean like things that no one could foresee and at the end of the day though i mean like if that's true i don't know if we really should be working towards creating hit songs rather than working towards songs that really really resonate with us and if it resonates with a bunch of people along the way i feel like we're hitting our goals I feel there are two major themes here. There is, you know, obviously the question of how to exist as an artist. If you're always chasing hits, if you're always chasing the right formulas, you're not going to have a good time as an artist. You're just going to be a cog in the machine. You're searching for an end that isn't really an end. It never stops there. Like after you have a hit, what's next? Another hit? Do you retire for the sake of your sanity and enjoying the craft? It's always nice to not think about these things on such a grand scale. And also that point you made about, you know, how a bunch of serendipitous events led up to making a hit or making a major event. I am a strong believer in this concept called demographic luck, where your chances at life or at success in general are very heavily influenced by where you're born, how you look like, what language you speak, what skills that have been passed to you at a young age, like your childhood education, the place you grew up, the atmosphere in which you live in, the climate, the people around you. And that's not a very common rebuttal to that point of view, which would mean that, you know, oh, life is deterministic. You don't have to do anything, you know, because it's decided for you. I feel that's not true at all. You definitely have a big part to play in which you take these advantages or disadvantages that have been offered to you at birth or at life. And a big part of how you manipulate them is up to you and up to how much work you put in. So likewise, when I think of a song, like a healthy way to view this deterministic view on life is that I understand as a person that how my song succeeds or whether this piece of music or art or work succeeds, it's not up to me. But I can definitely raise the odds by doing this, by having a release plan, by having milestones in place, by, having, by releasing at the right time. These things can influence the outcome, but it's still not up to me. The latter is just how to live with yourself, really. Continue making music with a healthy mind. And the former release plans and all that is to give yourself the best shot at being you know, an artist. I really love that you pointed that out. I am kind of a believer in that as well. The fact that you know your life situation, you have a specific hand of cards that you're dealt. 
And you can't always work outside of that. You kind of got to work with what you got. But that doesn't mean you can't get new cards. It doesn't mean you can't figure out unique ways in order to use what you have. Taking advantage of the advantages you have. And I think one of the hardest thing people find is identifying those advantages. Like you don't even know what you have sometimes. Sometimes those cards are face down. You really got to figure out good ways to turn them over. The thing you also said at the beginning was about like formulaic producing of people really trying to figure out the secret code to writing the next hit song. A lot of people might look at some kind of, I guess you could say, more mainstream music, some pop music or maybe some big room festival music. I know I've talked to a lot of producers and some producers, they say like, oh, it sounds the same or it sounds formulaic. And some of that I think is true in that there is kind of a formula to some of those types of music and to getting constant views or constant listens or constant crowds to come out for that same type of experience. One term I like to throw out sometimes is I think some people try to science art too much to try to figure out the formula to art. But, you know, that's like trying to apply math to something that doesn't even function in the realm of math. So I really like that you touched on that because I think that's really powerful. To add on to that and to expand a little bit further into kind of how music is written and how you write music and how storytelling is really done through music is something I'd really like to ask you about because I'm a big fan of your music and I really like to analyze music in terms of a storytelling perspective. And so one song in particular is Lyra. To me, it's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever listened to. I think structurally, it's really well done, massively put together. And so how do you approach music in general from a storytelling perspective and maybe using Lyra as an example just so people can go look that song up and like use that as kind of a visual, so to speak? Actually, I want to talk about something you brought up before of course go ahead was it about sciencing science art, art too much yeah that hit me yeah too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just stuck by that i think a really simple answer to that question is that not everyone in art is an artist it's definitely subjective there is no handbook to say if you become a producer you have to make life-changing bodies of work that's not true at all you can get into music to have fun you can get into music to connect with your friends. You can get into music to find new friends. Like there's no real handbook. So to me, when I see EDM acts that to me look really formulaic and I've been releasing the same genres of music for years, I don't hate them. I just say they have different goals than I do. And that's perfectly fine. In music, there's no wrong or right. And I'm fine with that. I'm at ease. Like if your goal is to play as many festivals as you can and have fun and release music that gets people hyped, go for it. Like, I'm all for it. That's how I try to kind of square the circle, that realization that people have all these formulas to have their best shot at art. And that's fine by me. I just might not use these same formulas. Yeah, back to the actual question on storytelling. I think since we're talking about formulas so much, I mean, storytelling definitely comprises the same elements over and over again, right? There's a setting, there's a plot, plot thickens, there's a climax. Any kind of classical literature will always have the same template, right? There could be more plots or side quests or increasing levels of climaxes. But for me, what I wanted to do with Lyra was to create basically like a boss fight. I love video games. I love playing mostly RPG adventure games. I love exploring worlds that game developers have painstakingly created. And what I tried to do was replicate that feeling of, you know, hardship of adventure, of just putting hours into a game, like trying to crack it, trying to find something. Like the objective is not so clear to you. So when the song starts, it's serene, it's setting the pace, and then hardship occurs. Like you're facing a boss or you're facing a challenge. And this definitely applies to life as well, right? The life and journey of the producer or anyone in this world, really. 
is fraught with hardships. And I just tried to encapsulate that using different instruments, different timbres, different moods. And after that hardship, there's a resolution. There is some kind of satisfying ending. And there's this sense of you know, peacefulness and serenity that makes you ready to go on your next adventure. And that's what I tried to do with Lyra. That's what I tried to do with all my songs, really. It's just like a story, right? And not all stories are the same. So they have different formats, they have different genres, they have different templates. That's it to me. I'm really glad you kind of elaborated on that because that's actually like the exact feeling I get when I listen to it is like, I hear the battle, I hear the struggle, I hear the triumph. For me, when I make music, when I listen to music, it's so visual. I wish there was a way I could take my music or what I'm listening to and put it on like a visualizer, just like stream of consciousness, like some minority report level technology. But I'm really glad that I was interpreting your music correctly because that gives me a little more confidence in my ability to even do that in the first place. It's really powerful that you approach storytelling in a way that you really try and capture the emotion of like a life experience or a story that just pops into your head. I think everyone has the capabilities of being an artist. Everyone's drawn to art as well. So whether it's a movie idea or like a video game idea or a melody that just pops in your head, all of that I feel like is interconnected. Like you could take a description of a character or a story and have a song apply to that or vice versa. And so I think that that is really powerful kind of tying the two together. I know that there's an artist, I forget who it was, but they said basically one of the ways they sometimes will go about writing a song is they'll literally just look up on Google Images some cool pictures or some cool landscapes and go off of the emotion they have and then just write a melody off of that. I think that's really powerful. That's so smart. Because the reason, at least in my opinion, to add on to this is the concept of the creative canteen. So the creative canteen is this, you know, we all know what it's like when we're in our dog and we hit this wall. Like, I don't know what to do next. I know something's missing, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what it is, right? And it kind of becomes stressful at that point. It's like, oh, you know, like, oh, do I keep going? Do I take a break? I don't know what to do. Where do I go? What, you know, like, in my opinion, when that happens, you start entering into creative starvation. The reason why is because you've used up all of the creativity inside of your creative canteen. At that point, your soul is like saying like, hey, I need some stuff to inspire me. Like, I want to create this song with you, but I need some stuff to inspire me. So that's why at that point, go and fill up your creative canteen. You know, Manfred, you mentioned you go and play video games. I love video games, dude. Like I've played Zelda Breath of the Wild for more hours than I have probably worked out this year. It's insane. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like no one's looking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when I did that, it shot my creativity through the roof, right? The storyline, the imagery, the music, the landscapes, the everything. All of a sudden it's like, wait, I really love this story that's coming through here. I want to keep going. You know, again, talking about Zane Griffin, we were in the studio last night recording this course and he was talking about like he created an entire album off the zodiac signs so he would go and find imagery and concepts and stories and books and all kinds of stuff and read and partake of that and his creative canteen was just overflowing at that point because he filled it so much and at that point it's painful not to get back to the daw it's painful to have to wait it's like oh my gosh i know exactly what to do now it's because you have actively filled your creative canteen that's a good healthy way to view it i definitely have tried to embody my inspiration as a resource, kind of like how you do with the canteen. But to me, the resource is infinite. If it's borderless, like it has no walls trying to contain it, it just spreads itself out infinitely and doesn't know what to do itself. At least for me, from personal experience, it's just this unbounded energy that can't be tamed. And when you can't tame it, it starts to do counterproductive things. Like you start wondering, oh, I don't know what to do. There's so many things to do. You get you know, option paralysis. 
And for me, how I overcome creative blocks is try to limit my scope, try to limit my focus. So I feel like that's a very optimistic view of the human creative cortex, the center of inspiration. But I think it's healthy too, because if I were to view it like a canteen, man, I would just spend all day trying to fill it up. I wouldn't get any work done. I would try to play as many games as I could to you know, relax, to just have a good day all day. Think like, oh, one day I'll need this inspiration. But I try to view it with an element of pressure. Like it's this unbounded energy force that needs to be tamed through discipline, through routine, through talking to yourself every day. Like, what do you want to do today? Through setting limits for yourself. I think limits are the best way to overcome a creative block. If you're stuck in a song, you don't know what to do next. Just limit yourself in something. Like one thing I like to do all the time when I'm making music is just close my eyes because you're always staring at your dog. Like for me, it's Ableton, right? It looks like an Excel worksheet. That's not inspirational. Like that. <laughs> I don't have a second screen where I can pull up a video, right? So I'm looking at this grayscale Excel sheet looking thing where sounds are through bars. It's just really uninspiring to me. So what I like to do is just close my eyes and listen to what comes next. Because I listen to so much music, I'm still very bad at predicting what comes next. And if I listen to a song for the first time, I'm not trying to take in the song. I'm trying to think about where the song will go. As a result, you know, I get very creative. So I'm pleasantly surprised when I expect something to change in a chord progression in this way, but it doesn't. So when I have an idea that I'm stuck on, I just close my eyes trying to think of the atmosphere it's in. What's it missing? Where should it go? It's like taking a journey. You are entirely up to yourself to decide where you want to walk to. I feel it's the same way with producing. Like You're only blocked because you're not imagining enough or you're not having enough limits on yourself. Maybe to kind of clarify a little bit more with the creative canteen, because I think we're saying the same thing and I think I didn't explain myself quite enough. So yes, I agree with everything that you're saying. Don't feel like your creative canteen is this gigantic thing that you can keep filling up and keep filling up. There is a very well-defined limit, but the important part that you were saying and that I think I need to add is this, there is an expiration date with everything that you put in there. If you fill up your creative canteen on Tuesday, that does not mean it's still going to be full to go on Saturday. And so you need to act on that because, you know, life gets in the way. Maybe you forget about stuff. Maybe the effect of filling the canteen doesn't get quite as potent. And so there is a time limit that you need to do. So if the creative canteen is full, you feel anything in there, you need to get it out really, really quick. But also, I think it's important that creativity and inspiration is endless. And so sometimes maybe we think that the creative canteen is empty when it's really not. And so maybe we need to go in and really dig deep and kind of see what's inside of there and limit ourselves to be able to allow those last little drops of creative canteen to come out. And so I think we're finding a middle ground between our two theories. Am I correct in thinking that? For sure. Yeah, I think I definitely like both analogies. I do really like the aspects that Manfred was talking about, about taming your creativity, which is by limiting yourself or disciplining yourself. I mean, you could draw inspiration from a video game, from a song you heard, from a picture you saw, from a smell. You know, you walk down the street, smell some food. That could literally inspire a song. I've been inspired from less. You can literally be inspired by anything. And so I think learning to tame yourself and tame that creativity, because when there's too many options, sometimes you get nothing done that can definitely hinder you if you don't know how to hone that in. And to tie that into what Wyatt said, sometimes you don't know what to do with yourself. If you don't act on it right then, you'll, oh, I got this inspiration and this inspiration. And before you know it, you've already overlapped. You've already forgotten about the thing you were inspired about yesterday because there's already so many other things inspiring you. 
So being able to like get that stuff down on paper, whether it's writing it down, I record stuff on my phone all the time. Like I'll think of something in the shower and I'll literally get out of the shower prematurely, grab my phone, open like a voice recording app, verbally sing, like do, 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 literally doing that to get it out of my head and into something where I can go back and listen to it later. That's super helpful. I I love it, man. Guys, we got to wrap this up in about five minutes. Tevin, do you got any final questions for Mern here, dude? I mean, I'm looking at my list right now. We actually naturally transitioned into my last question, which was how do you overcome writer's blocks? We've kind of (laughs) already gone into that. No, this has been great. One last thing I wanted to talk to you about, a little bit of a production type question, but you did an interview with Cymatics like a year or two ago. You talked about in that interview how a big portion of your music is sample-based. Like you use a lot of samples. You don't necessarily rely on, you know, serum for everything. So what drew you to using a lot of samples in your music as opposed to relying on a lot of plugins? What is your take on that? I was never really a sample-based producer. When I used to make a lot of my tracks, it would just be layers and layers of silent, nexus, massive, when it was popular, right? And when Serum came out, I felt the same thing. Auction paralysis. I could do anything I wanted with this thing. And I just immediately felt like standing on a huge grass plane. And I would think like, where do I go with this? You know, I could go any direction I wanted. And that gave me a lot of writing block with Serum, with relying on a generator to produce sound. For me, samples open up my field of view a lot more. It's like having a GPS that tells you you have to stay on this road. And while that might be limiting for people, I think samples are a better way to visualize music. Like, I don't want to stare at Serum for hours on end and then drawing in some MIDI notes because I don't know how the song looks. I don't know how the sound feels when I close my eyes. And I can't really close my eyes because I'm trying to tweak the presets or I'm trying to tweak a patch in Serum. So with samples, you're giving yourself few options. And from there, it helps you make those decisions a lot easier, for me at least. From a creative standpoint, you know, samples are cool because there could be thousands of layers in a sample and it's all exported to just one simple audio file. The things you can do with that are really endless. So now anything that's very you know synthetic in nature, like bass or a lead or... Yeah, I think only those two things. Maybe a bass and a background noise. Those are, you know, from generators, like white noise generators, subtractive synths. I have a nice Dave Smith profit that I try to include in my music. But most of the track, they're all just sampled. They're either Foley recordings, they're reverse samples of an actual full song, they're vocal cuts, they're old records sampled from vinyl. And I feel like that just helps create an environment or an atmosphere a lot faster than if you would do it with massive or silence. Dude, that's really powerful. You kind of tied it into what we were talking about with having too many options. I definitely think samples really do help kind of hone in your creativity and really give you something to focus on. For my final question for you, I've been thinking this whole time, like, oh, what is the best question? What is the final, final question? Good stuff, right? I got one more question, one more chance, right? Basically, I want to ask this, right? Let's say that there's a producer that's listening to this podcast right now. I listen to an episode and they know without a shadow of a doubt that music is what they are supposed to do. You got all the odds against them. They're new budding producers and everything. They don't know everything yet. They don't know all the ropes and all that kind of stuff, but they know it's what they're supposed to do. Of course, now they're kind of entering that phase of the hardship, right? They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. The weight of music production is starting to come down on them. You know, like all the expectations, the things that they don't know is starting to crush them. And now they are tempted not to walk down this path anymore. They're tempted to give up music production. They're tempted to stick with the status quo and listen to their parents and, you know, society and say, don't do this, right? For that producer in mind, if you could sit down one-on-one with them, 
what would you say to them? What you just described, that predicament, was what I was in four years ago. I live in a conservative Asian family. I was encouraged to do something like dentistry or law or business. And I think a big part of what makes a music producer or a big part of what makes an artist or anyone down in the creative field is how you view self-determination, like what you want to decide for yourself, right? Are you going to let other people decide for you? That's on the more philosophical side. Like, is this what I was put on earth to do? That brings me to the mundane side of things. Like music will always be my passion, my hobby. It's not this like sacred Shaolin monk ritual where you devote your entire life to training like a nomad in the mountains. It's really just making beats on your doll of choice. It's having fun with it. It's making friends. It's enjoying the creative process. It's making songs that you never thought you would. It's recreating songs that are personal to you. And I think once you reconnect with those things, those simple things, the community aspect, the playing live aspects, just having fun with it makes the journey a lot easier. That doesn't mean that your problems will disappear. Should I get this job? Or should I pay for my rent this month? Those problems will still be there. But just focusing on the small things with music production just makes the journey a lot easier. That's definitely something that I think resonates with a lot of our listeners is finding that joy. Ask yourself, what brought you into it in the first place? I remember I started producing about two and a half, three years ago. And somewhere in the middle there, I definitely kind of lost the drive. You know, you lose some of that because you're struggling with, is this right for me? What do I do first? There's so many questions. Every time I even have that doubt, I go back to the first song I ever produced, which is not my finest work by any means. (laughs) But I remember the feeling of how happy I was to finish that song and the feeling of making it. It's one of the most proud achievements I've ever had my entire life is just finishing that first song. And I also think forward to what image did I have of myself going into this? And I have that as a goal, like stamped in my mind, just helping myself get through any hardship that I have. So I think that that's really powerful of you to share. Yeah, I remember that first feeling. But I think I had any last words, I would say, just think of your favorite producer. Think of your favorite artist. It could be dead or alive, doesn't matter. For example, like Porter Robinson. I don't imagine Porter Robinson waking up every single day, you know, feeling like a god, saying like, all right, I was put on this earth to make life-changing music. I have to put out a serious record that would change boundaries of time or something like that. No, he just wakes up and he probably just tries to have fun with it. And that's what I try to think about all the time. All the greats. They were all started by just messing around with instruments, by just having fun. And I think that's what a lot of people need to remember. Amazing, dude. Sanford, it was a blessing to be able to have you on here, man. You were so deep. There was so much good stuff that came out of here. Oh, man. Dude, it was an absolute treat and honor to do this. Did you have a good time? Yeah, I did. I've never actually put these thoughts into words, so I have you to thank. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, dude. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, this is incredible. Thank you. I hope someone out there finds this remotely interesting or helpful. What's up, Don Nation? Did you enjoy that? Did you learn a lot? Now, don't head out yet because the episode isn't over yet because we still need to talk about those extra things of value that we talked about in the introduction of this episode. Really quick, I would love to remind you to go ahead and hit the like button, comment below, let us know if you like the episode or not, and hit the subscribe button and the little notification bell so you again get notified whenever we put out a new episode of Behind the Daw or any of our other pieces of content. So we got all those things out of the way. Now we can talk about the four extra things that we feel are gonna bring a lot of value to your music journey. First thing that we wanna talk about is in the DAW. Now what the heck is in the DAW? You're on behind the DAW. There's a difference between in the DAW and behind the DAW? Yes. 
let me go ahead and explain that for you. So behind the DAW is where we interview music producers, music industry experts, people of that nature on an emotional, philosophical, music business basis, right? But in the DAW is where we focus more on the technical side, sound design, mixing, mastering, vocal production, all those kinds of things that actually happen in the DAW that is on our In The DAW series. And the best part about that is that we interview huge music producers. They break down their songs that they have already made. So that way that you can learn straight from the source. There's no, you don't have to scour YouTube looking for song or sound recreation videos from, you know, people trying to recreate a song or a sound that they didn't even make in the first place, all right? You learn straight from the source, straight from people that are making it in the music industry, all right? If you wanna check out In The DAW, that is over here on the YouTube series as well. Go ahead and just search through our videos and everything that is like highlighted in green with green particles, that is an In The DAW episode, which by the way, all the purple ones are a Behind The DAW episode. Which by the way, brings me to my second point. If you go and search through all of our content, you'll also see videos that have blue on them. What the heck is that? We got In The DAW, Behind The DAW. What are the blue ones? The blue ones are called Mastermind Mondays, okay? Now, I have a very big disclaimer with Mastermind Monday episodes, okay? They are not for everyone. They are not for the hobbyists. They are only for the super devout music producers, okay? People that are willing to put in the work, that are willing to go the extra mile, the go-getters, the people that are willing to go above and beyond the call of duty, okay? If that is you, then the Mastermind Monday episodes are for you. Now, what are they? So every single week, I go and I research a piece of content that I feel like is really, really gonna help music producers, uh, singers, songwriters, people within the music industry, people like that. If that is you, then I highly encourage you to check out that episode because I go and find that piece of content, I bring it back, I talk about it, and then I show you how to apply it into your career. So number one, you don't have to go find the piece of content. Number two, you don't have to partake of the piece of content. And number three, you don't even have to figure out how to apply it into your life. I do all of those things for you. I literally put it on a silver platter for you and just give it to you. So again, it's not for everyone. It's only for the super devout music producers, singers, songwriters, music industry experts, people like that. If, if that is you, then I highly encourage you to go check out the Mastermind Monday episodes, okay? The third thing is that all of our content, in the dot, behind the dot, Mastermind Monday, all of these things can be partaken of in two different ways. Now, you can watch it on the YouTube channel, which is where we are right now. If you're more of a watcher than a listener, you're in the right place. You can watch it. You can see it here. It's absolutely fantastic. But... If you're more of a listener than a watcher, well, guess what? You can partake of all this content on the go through our DAW Nation podcast, okay? Maybe you're driving, maybe you're at work, maybe you're working out, maybe you're doing dishes, which I feel for you. I've done so many dishes in the last two weeks. It's been really quite scary. Anyways, it doesn't matter. If you are like that, guess what? You can just listen to it all there. All of our content is there so you can listen to it. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, where can you find the podcast? Where does that exist? It exists literally everywhere. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Deezer, obviously on YouTube is where we are right now. SoundCloud, it's literally everywhere, okay? Anywhere where there is a podcast app, anywhere where you can get podcasts, the Daw Nation podcast is over there. So I'd highly encourage you to go find that, subscribe to that, and listen to it when you when you can't watch anything, when you can just listen to something, okay? So that you can keep growing on your music, so you can keep going and growing in your music career, literally any, anywhere. If you're going to the store, babysitting kids, actually, if you're babysitting kids, probably don't do that. But if you're doing anything else where you can listen to a podcast, I highly encourage you to check out the Daw Nation podcast over on those podcasting apps. Now, the fourth point that I wanna talk about is that you have partaken of our free content. In the Daw, Behind the Daw, 
Mastermind Monday always will be free. But if you really want to take your skills to a whole new level, okay, I would highly encourage you to head on over to DaNation.net and check out our courses over there. Number one is a school base. It's a huge sound design course that we did with 85, very advanced sound design, right? To be able to set you up and create new sounds literally for the rest of your life. These techniques will never go bad. You can always evolve them and apply them to whatever type of music that you want to make and always be able to stick out. Never sound like anyone else ever again. So if you want to check that out over on DawNation.net. And finally, the newest product that we just put out is a masterclass with Zan Griffin. Now, if you don't know Zan Griffin, he released an album called the Zodiac Album. It went on to get over a hundred million streams. Okay. It was released on Seeking Blue. And guess what? He breaks down every single song that he made inside that album. You literally see how every single song was made, how every single process was decided upon. It's, it's literally incredible. Literally, if you could have a chance to see Literally, if you could have a chance to see how an album that got over 100 million streams was created, wouldn't you want to take that? Heck yes, you would. Well, guess what? Now you can. So you can head on over to DotNation.net and check out the Zodiac Masterclass. It comes with a bunch of bonuses, a bunch of presets, project files, um, stems, a whole bunch of stuff. So if you want to check that out or any of the other products that we talked about, again, DotNation.net. So DotNation, with all that being said, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Behind the Daw with Mert. And if you did, please let us know down in the comments or here's a better idea take a screenshot of you watching the episode right now tag both of us so Don Nation and Mern over on an Instagram story okay right now our Instagram names are going to be popping up on the screen we would love to hear from you so right now on the screen all the pop-ups are going to be showing up so up here in the top left corner is going to be a button that is going to allow you to subscribe to the Don Nation YouTube channel now if you haven't done that yet I would highly encourage you to click that button that is in the top left over in the top right is going to be our latest piece of content, which very well could be what you are watching right now, or maybe it's not. So if you wanna see our latest piece of content, again, up here in the top right corner. Now, if you wanna see every single episode of In The Daw, down over here in the bottom left corner is a playlist with all of the In The Daw episodes that we've ever done. So you can go ahead and check that out down here in the bottom left corner. Now, over here in the bottom right corner is a playlist with all of the Behind The Daw episodes. So if you wanna check out all of those, go ahead down over here in the bottom left. But Daw Nation, with that being said, we really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Behind the Daw. Make sure to come back here next week. We'll be releasing a new episode of In the Daw. Okay, we switch off every week. We would love to see you back here. With that being said, Daw Nation, you're amazing. We'll see you on our next episode.